having the future as your guide allows you to leave the past behind because it becomes less relevant. But a lot of people dwell so much on what happened to them that they forget about where they're going. And then you get lost. What is up, you sexy bastards? It is your boy, Mr. Miata, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, that's the Raul Powell of Real Vision. Now, he's a former hedge fund manager, but he retired to the coast of Spain at the age of 36. And he started a publication called Global Macro Investor. We'll figure out what that is later. It is a publication read by the world's largest and most successful hedge funds, pensions, sovereign wealth funds, and family offices. Super interesting stuff. As you're hearing this episode, Raul is a futurist who likes to think 10 years in the future at least. It is why he's 98% of invested into Bitcoin, Ethereum, and a bunch of other weird things. Plus, he has a house in the Cayman Islands. He visualizes the future he wants and believes in it, then makes it a reality. You can learn more about Raul before we get into the episode. His website is realvision.com, and he is on Twitter. That's twitter.com slash Raul, R-A-O-U-L-G-M-I. If you ever want to learn about how to let the future guide you to a life of wealth, love, and happiness, you are going to love this episode. In this conversation, here's three gigantic things. Number one, what investing and happiness have in common? Two, why Raul moved all of his savings into crypto and he gave me all of it. Just kidding. I wish. Number three, the future of crypto and online tribes. Enjoy those three things plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Also special pre-show shout out to listener Alex RM87. He left a review saying, this podcast is awesome. Value bombs. There's no bombs here. Only in back then. In every episode, sprinkle along with a very entertaining way of presenting the content. I like you, Alex. And I like every other one of you gorgeous listeners. If you want to shout out in a future episode, just leave a review wherever you're listening to the show. I check every single one of them. If you haven't checked out AppSumo.com, it's a company we built for you. If people are starting or growing an online business, that's AppSumo.com. You can use code NOAH10 on checkout for 10% off if you're a brand new customer. Also, check out Email Badge. That's EmailBadge.com. It's a brand new product we released as an AppSumo original. It is free. It's for your email signature. It makes you look all sexy. Check it out. Let me know what you think. Emailbadge.com. Raul Pal. Yeah. It's a random name. Nobody pronounces it the same. Not even my parents do, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> what do they call you? My mother is kind of, is Raul. Americans are Raul. I lived in Spain for 10 years, so I'm Raul. And then English people tend to call me Raul, like R-A-L. It's just random. I don't take offense to anybody. Nobody else has got a stupid name with three vowels in the middle of it. Thank God you're not on a Wheel of Fortune, you know? <laughs> They're like, ah, give us a vowel. You're like, dude, Raul the Pal vowel, like, has got, I got a shit ton of them for you. <laughs> One, we really loved your messages. I think you're, you're kind of sharing your, I wouldn't say you're anti-get-rich-quick, but I love people that are trying to think deeper, trying to think about, like, what's actually going on versus all the sheep are moving left doing financial things, and we should just copy them to, to pray and get rich. So I always appreciate anyone out there sharing that message. Great. So thank you, man. I, I was curious, uh, who is Raul Powell, right? And who, what's that awesome painting behind you? That's an NFT of me done by some guys called the Real Vision Bot, who are two quant guys, who for fun built this NFT and then sent it to me and I printed it out and they've sold the other 10, I think. So you printed out a digital piece or did they actually, did they digitally make it? They digitally made it and then I printed it out and got it printed and put it on the wall. That's cool. How is it to look at yourself like that? I was thinking of putting a photo of myself right when I walk in my house. <laughs> I don't mind because it it's a caricature of me, right? And I don't take myself too seriously. So it kind of works. Have you always taken yourself less seriously? Or is it now that you're rich or richer, you take it less seriously? No, financial markets beat it out of you. I always say, if you think your shit smells of roses, you're about to get your face rubbed in it. And that's always the case. So humility is 
a key to success in financial markets. People who aren't humble learn the hard way that nobody's infallible. Yeah. I guess sometimes it's the whole financial markets. Do you ever take a step up or back or diagonal and then think we created all this as humans and the significance of it? Yeah. Because then you get in the philosophy of money and what that's all about and why, why we create it and behavior systems and stuff like that. It's kind of weird. But humans seem to want to come running around to get access to money, to get access to stuff that they could probably get if they didn't have the money in the first place. Like, you know, I live in the Caribbean on a small island. And you don't need all the money in the world to live on a nice little beach somewhere. But for some reason, we think we have to go that route. It's hilarious. But that's humans for you. They need a purpose. Well, I think that's why I try to discourage people from getting rich. And I hate that I'm rich because then I'm like telling the people like, well, you're the rich one trying to hold us back. And I'm not. It's fine if it's a, an accidental output, but not the goal itself. The goal has to be quality of life. And without that, what's the point of living, right? We got one life. Yes. It's yes. always been that equation to me. I knew it when I was, you know, going on the tube to London to go to work at Goldman Sachs at five o'clock in the morning. I'm like, I'm only doing this to exchange this for lifestyle in, style in the future. And so that's why I quit finance early and went to live on the Mediterranean coast of Spain because I knew what counted to me more. Can you tell me the story of what a quality life looks like? You said that's what you were aiming for. Because I think a lot of people don't realize that it's accessible and it's doable for a lot less money than they think. The penny dropped for me when I was on holiday with an ex-girlfriend of mine in Mallorca in Spain. And we were on a beach and there was this fantastic, it was out of tourist season, and there was this fantastic uh, oil drum split in two where somebody's grilling sardines on the beach and charging one euro for them. And they're incredible. And I'm sitting there eating sardines, washing it down with a cold beer. And I look across me and there's this mini peninsula with pine trees and palm trees on it. And there is this long table, a rickety old wooden table, with maybe 25 people all sitting down this long table eating paella on a Sunday afternoon. And it's this family, Spanish family and extended family. And they're overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. There's nothing posh going on there. They're just on these like trestle tables, all cobbled together, all outside. And I looked at that and thought, that's what I want out of life. And so that's what I searched for. So, you know, when I was 36, I was running a large hedge fund. And I decided to, you know, I wasn't the richest man in the world, but I've done okay. But I thought, you know what, I want to solve for lifestyle more than I want to solve for money. So I decided to move to the Mediterranean coast of Spain. And I bought a beautiful house for the same price as my three bedroom apartment in central London. I bought a, you know, a house on eight acres in the middle of the national park, 10 minutes from the beach in wow. Spain with olive trees, orange trees, almond groves, all of that stuff. Grew my own fruit and veg and thought I could be the kind of farmer guy. And I started writing macroeconomic research as an income strategy, so I didn't spend my capital. Unfortunately, A, farming olives and almonds is not easy, and you don't get any money. And B, my research business took off. So I ended up making more money than I thought I had. But I, it wasn't my objective. My objective was that objective. And there I was publishing once a month, being paid to think by the world's most famous hedge fund managers by writing this research, and living in this Mediterranean paradise where you know you get the beautiful weather, you're in touch with the seasons and nature, those things just so grounding, incredible. And eventually I ended up moving to the Caribbean by chance because I had another dream in my life, which was one was the Mediterranean, that dream of those people and that Sunday afternoon. And the other was as a kid, I was infatuated by Jacques Cousteau and diving. And I've been around the world diving. And at one point, I just loved that kind of turquoise tropical sea. And I thought, 
one point I'd love to do that. And I'd love the idea of a rem- remote island. And I ended up on a dive boat in the Galapagos, shark diving. And I met a bunch of people and they said, hey, you should come to the Cayman Islands. I'm like, that's not for me. It's kind of quite suburban. And they said, well, you should try this island called Little Cayman. So I did. So I flew there. And Little Cayman is an island of 140 people in the middle of nowhere. And I landed. The next day, I bought a piece of land and built a house four years later and then ended up deciding to move there. And now I live between Little Cayman and Grand Cayman, but I've got a place in Spain as well. Hans, so you do live on Little Cayman still? I live mainly in Grand Cayman, but I spend quite a lot of time. So over COVID, I was there for nine months, which is amazing. It's just myself, my wife, and two dogs. And there was virtually nobody around. You'd see a few friends you know, on the weekend for dinner or something because we had no COVID and no masks and everything else because we were pretty much sealed off from the world. And it was like this desert island life we've all dreamed about where everything is stripped back. You can't even go to the dry cleaners to get your clothes done. There's nowhere to go. There's like all the bars are closed. There's one shop and one booze shop. That's it. When your life is that simple, you realize how amazing it is. And that's exactly the point you were trying to make is it's not about the money because I could have been the wealthy guy or the poor guy living in the same island because it's pretty much egalitarian. So everybody's the same there. And you live the exact same quality of life. Man, that's, I was thinking, imagining when you're buying in Little Cayman with 140 people, like, is there even land to buy? Like, what did you get, like a piece of water? About 300 foot of beachfront, which was all right. Um, I also met my, my wife there, which was bizarre. She's one in 140. Like, if half are men, like, you, one, she's a one in 70. Yeah. That's pretty good odds. I mean, you yeah. pick, I mean, can you, stock picking is not even that good. <laughs> I guess one thing I, I'm think, I'm wondering is that how can other people, start thinking about their dreams or, or ha- finding their own type of, you know, rich life. And then we'll, we'll talk, obviously, you know, there's some topics that you're known for that I'll dive into. But I think all of those things also lead to the, the end result. Well, it's, to me, it's all the same thing. You have to live in the future. You have to know what the, your future vision of yourself is. And then you have to think about that and say, A, is it realistic? Or B, is it what I want? And then you basically solve for it. So that's what I did as a 22-year-old sitting on that beach with my ex-girlfriend. I basically solved that. That's what I want. That was my vision. How am I going to get there? I don't know. We'll figure out a path. It's exactly the same as investing, is you have to look at future future states of the world and figure out the probabilities and whether the world is going to go that way or not. It's basically the same process. For me, it's fixating on how you envisage living your life. What makes you happy? And you know, simple things for me is one is sun, right? So that was a I realized it was a bit I grew up in England. It's a shitty, rainy cloudy, muddy country. And I didn't want that. You know, I like the sunshine. So that drove me to the Mediterranean and the Caribbean. It's things like that. It's like another thing that, that was important to me is places that have a certain cultural history. And Spain was important to that, where you feel like you're exposing yourself to something vibrant. Because I think all creativity comes from outside of the comfort zone. And you need no. to go into different places. You know, it's the comfort zone and where the magic happens. Those things don't overlap. So you have to be outside of your comfort zone, which is one of the reasons I went diving around the world. And I drove from Hungary to Mali, which is the middle of Africa, twice. I've done that as a rally, a humanitarian aid rally and part race for the fun of it. And I don't know what I was doing. We broke down. You know, we almost died a few times. It was all part of the experience. And then we delivered aid to small villages in Mali. And that was well outside my comfort zone. I walked across the Sinai Desert. That was pretty outside my comfort zone as well. But what it does is broaden your mind and give you the experience and a joy of life. And the answer to everything is the joy of life. I asked my therapist that, or I was talking to him about like the purpose of life. And I was like, to enjoy it, to have fun. And he's like, no, nah, it's not. I don't know. I disagree. I agree with you. I think it's like, 
If not that, then what? Well, it depends how you do that. If it's the selfish aims of everything I do is for me, it's not. It's kind of how, and that's why like somewhere like Spain teaches you this, it's your interactions within society or that small island of Little Cayman. The interaction with society and where you fit into it is where actually all of that comes from because it gives you the stability and it's not just all about you. It's about you and your place in society. And that's actually really nice. And we lose that in these big societies now. Oh, I think the community aspect is completely lost. Like I moved into a house uh, a few years ago and you kind of miss the apartment or college living where there's a bunch of people around you. Ideally, you know, kind of maybe even a work environment, like, hey, we're all working on the same thing or we're going in the same direction. And you get in the house, you're kind of like, like kind of isolated. And I, I was surprised by that experience. And so I do miss, you know, now there's the office, which is nice. Or how do I go and build communities that I can be a part of? Because I don't, yeah. At the end of the day, we're all alone. And so it's nice to be like, oh, we're on this planet kind of trying to do good stuff, make use of our, our life here. Yeah. And, you know, I must admit, online communities have been quite rewarding as well. So I don't, I don't discount those. But just the general, again, you go to a Spanish village and it's a fiesta day and everybody's outside having lunch with each other, sharing terrible wine from last year's harvest and having fun. It's like, and it's kids, dogs, grandparents, you know, everybody of different ages all together. It's like, you know, that's pretty special. Oh, it's super good. I mean, I am curious before we obviously get into the macro stuff, but in the micro, what's it like to live on a tiny ass island? Because I, I don't know what I, I feel like when I get bored really quickly. Little Cayman, you have to teach yourself not to get bored. So you have to teach yourself to notice things. It's kind of like meditation. It's like most of the time you don't see anything that's going around you in life. When you move to a small island, it forces you to. So you notice the bird life, you notice the waves, you notice all of the things, how the sun rises, how it sets, the time of day it does, how the seasons change, because there's no other distractions. On Grand Cayman, where I am now, it's different. It's more of a kind of more urban existence, but it's still there. It's still around you. So it's not too bad. And you know these islands are amazing because they're basically an hour's flight from Miami. So there's a direct flight to London, yet you kind of feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. But with in Grand Cayman, we've got first world infrastructure as well. Fantastic restaurants, amazing hotels, you know, some of the world's best beaches. So it's actually very, very easy place to live. Yeah, that is wild. I mean, you're literally running a, a sizable business from an island kind of in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And it's brilliant. It's amazing that we can do this. I mean, you know, go back a year and a half and I was on the plane to New York to our main office in New York every, you know, every week. And it was a nightmare. My life was just on planes. And now we've learned that we don't even have to do that because I ran the whole business from Little Cayman, not even Grand Cayman, on my own from my house with my two dogs and my wife, you know, hilarious. I mean, without other people around and you realize the world has actually changed and you can get back quality of life. So you think more people should just experience outside their comfort zone? And then really, I I think what you inspired me to think about is also what does that future look like? So if that's where I want to be, like for me, you know, in terms of I'm considering a family. Okay, well, what do I need to do today? if That's where I want to be going in the future. And where do you want to be living with that family? What kind of experiences do you want to be having? Those are the key things. Because having a family is not the means to the end. The means to the end is what does it create for you? What are you looking for? And what does that look like? Do you want to be that, that family of multi-generations on that little hilltop, you know, having paella on a Sunday, right? Then you say, fine, where can I do that? How, how can I do it? And you go and solve that. I had a decorator. I just got a new house in Austin. And I had a decorator come over yesterday. And uh, I was asking her for permission to put up a piece of art. I like, you know, this kind of 
I don't know what you call it, nouveau, Richie style, gra- graffiti style of uh, art. That I really love it too. And I was like, I don't know, can I put it up in, my, in this area? It doesn't fit the color. She's like, it is your fucking house. There are no rules. And I was like, permission granted. And I think that, you know, I try to, I try to think about that in all these areas, right? Not that we should, you know, run stoplights. That, that I, I'm a fan of. But it's, you know, I think we're, we're looking to other people's permissions for our, our different ways of living. Versus- yeah, because also people think about conforming to society. The question is, is what society? So if you have a broader society, you feel less restricted by it. So we, hence, going back to the idea of travel and experiences that make you uncomfortable, they broaden your society and therefore you're free within that society. If you mm. actually live on an island of 140 people, then you're pretty restricted by what that island of 140 people do. But what's interesting about that place is for all of those people to get on, because they're all kind of weird because they all live in a small island, they tolerate everything. So you can be as weird as you want. So it, it just depends. I think what, what you got me inspired to think about is even in our own cities, like in Austin, I've been here over almost 11 years now, and I feel like I've done everything and I've seen everything. And even this morning, I went to the river and I swam with friends. And I was like, I didn't even know we had a river to swim in this specific area. And so I think there's so much more to, you know, I think we stay bored and I say that, but it's really, there's so much more than we even realize, but, you know, within our own cities, within our own lives, if we actually go into it. And um, on the bike ride home yesterday, I was noticing one of my friends, uh, a guy I met through, you know, the podcast and YouTube, I asked him like, what's a challenge in life that, that would make my life more interesting or the audience's life more interesting as well? All of us. And he's like, just go get in your car and get lost. Just go get in your car. And I was on my bicycle. He's like, just go. And don't have a destination. And I think to your point, you know, you start kind of just, oh, there's a lot more out there. What out, What do I really want? Like, how do I get, you know, how much creativity do I have? And uh, I guess you kind of you sparked that in me just in how you're talking about it. I mean, there's a, a good friend of mine, uh, one of the co-founders of Real Vision, Damien. He cites this psychological study that basically proved that people who run less routines in what they do I live outside their comfort zone, are more creative. And the single most creative thing a person can do, and it's kind of proven time and time again for authors, painters, musicians, everything, move country. Mm. Because you're so out of your comfort zone that your kind of myopic view of your environment and what you are and where you fit into it disappears. So you're left exposed and creativity comes out. Of course. I will say it's it's interesting you you highlight that. I, I, you could have done a dramatic pause, by the way, next time. Like, you know the single most thing to improve your creativity? I'm like, yeah, fucking say it, dude. I need to hear this. I moved areas within Austin, and I will say it dramatically, like, it's just opened up my mind. Like, there's new roads, and there's a new coffee shop, and there's new people, and there's new, like, new rooms in a house. And there's just, like, the whole newness of even in the same town. It's not as shifting as going from, like, when I moved from SF to Austin, or I moved Austin to Spain in the summers. like. But it's still like, even with your own town, if you don't have the money to, to move outside of it, you can move within it. So I, I love that yeah. point. Do you guys have any other cool things or uh, cool move towns or do other stuff to increase creativity or, or money? No. If, for me, it's, it's all about this living outside your comfort zone and deciding how do you get to that path of your future self. Too many people clash with their future self because they think of it as, I want to be driving a Ferrari and I want to, you know, that's all bullshit. How do you want to feel? That's what matters. How do you want to feel? What's the environment you're in? Do you want to feel like you're, you know, you're living an adventure? Do you want to feel like you're safe and secure? Those things are what defines your quality of life. It's nothing to do with the material stuff around you. I like the words. Last night with the designer, Karen, she's like, what words do you want to feel when you come home? 
I felt a little embarrassed to tell her. I felt like not, I don't think it was a shame, but I was embarrassed. That, like, I want my place to feel rich. I want to feel like I'm rich and not necessarily just in money, but just it feels like, and not decadent or overly grotesque, but just like, wow, like this is rich, this is nice. And it was almost, you know, it's a little, I read this book, I don't remember which one it was, but it's like sometimes we're a little ashamed of admitting what the things we really want. Yeah, and we're also ashamed of admitting success. Oh, tell me about it. It's hard to do because, you know, we all grow up with friends and different friends have different success paths and, you know, all of this stuff and it becomes complicated. And you're nervous of admitting success because also you jinx yourself. Because <laughs> it's the moment you, th- as you go back to the thing, it's the moment you think your shit smells of roses, you're about to have your face rubbed in it. So you have to be very careful. Yeah, I had a friend this morning ask me, he's like, well, now that, you know, his company's starting to make money, he's like, well, how do I deal with that? And how do I deal with that? I have people that work for me and like, I don't want to make it feel like I'm, you know, they're not getting taken care of. And the success is interesting. It's getting like, and then you get success. You're like, well, I don't want to lose the success. I noticed like my YouTube channel has started doing well. And I'm like, oh shit, I don't want to fuck up the videos now. And then that's how you kind of fuck up your stuff. And it's just interesting mindsets around all these things. Well, one thing I do want to take a step back on, how far ahead do you think of your future self? Are you thinking one year frame? Like, no, no, I'm, I'm usually 10, 15 years. Can you work, walk me through it just as an exercise? Like, so should I think about what I want to feel in 10 years? Like, so we'll go back to the example because it was very specific. So I was sitting on that beach and I saw an image of what I thought my future self would be, which is here I am in the Mediterranean by the water, surrounded by pine trees and palm trees, and there's friends and family around and it's sunny. Okay, how do you solve for that? You either end up being really rich and buying a house in the Mediterranean as a holiday home and you're going backwards and forwards and you're exhausted, or can you go and live there? How do I do that? Because I want to feel relaxed. I want to feel like those people were. I want to feel happy and I don't want to feel pressured by my work and everything else. So then cut to being on the tube five o'clock every morning to go to Goldman Sachs and you'd be thinking of this in your head because it's what motivates me. So what motivates me was not how much I got paid, but how much closer could I get to my goal? And then so I made a step. So how do I make a step is out of the blue one day, I went and had dinner with my dad. And I said, you know, one day I'd love to buy a house in Spain. You know, Spain was the country. And he said, you know what? One of my friends is selling a house. I'm like, okay. So it's just one of those random conversations. So he calls me up the next day and said, yeah, he's selling a house. Let me send you the picture. So he sent me this picture. And it was this huge kind of six bedroom house on a hillside in Spain. It wasn't a particularly nice house. You know, it was like a early 80s Spanish build, but, but it was big and it was on the side of a mountain overlooking orange groves towards the sea. I'm like, wow. I'm like, how much is that? He goes, I, I don't know, I'll find out. He called me back and said, at the time it was in dollars, $200,000. You know, I was earning good money in finance. So I just said, fine, um, I'll go next week. And I went there and bought it immediately because now what I orchestrated for myself was something that was really important to me is I bought this house that didn't cost a lot in this amazing place that was much closer to my goals, and I bought it in cash. And now I realized I'd won the game of life because I could lose my job. I could become disgraced. Anything could happen. I could work in a bar and basically afford to live on the side of a mountain in Spain in a six-bedroom house and have friends and family around me. I'm like, well, I've won. That little bit of security was a mental mind trick that allowed me to then push on with my career, knowing that I basically banked the home run. And it wasn't a big home run. It wasn't about being the richest man in the world. It was about, okay, I've actually got a lot further towards my dreams. Would you encourage that everyone 
you know, the audience that's listening and everyone out there thinks about where they want to be in 10 years and really map that out and then think about what can I start doing today for that? Yeah. And, and, and realize that don't be overly specific. I don't want to be in that house on that road, you know, all of this stuff. What you need to do is, is again, a little bit close to how you feel. What does that life make me feel and how do I get there? So if you're working in Chicago every day and it's freezing cold in winter and you're like, I've had enough of this, then fine. Then that's told you, you want to move to somewhere warmer. Do you want to move down to Austin? Do you want to move to Florida or do you want to move country? Then you can think, you know, what kind of environment? Do you want to be in a place where life is, life is vibrant and the cost of living is cheap? Okay, maybe you start thinking about Panama or Costa Rica or, or the Mediterranean in some countries. Just depends that those little triggers that appeal to you and different people are different. But yes, you, you need to be 10 years out because if not, you've got this kind of rigorous, I must compete, I must compete. You're not trying to compete. You're trying to win the whole game. Well, I think you have to know what game you're playing. And most people don't. And that's exactly the problem. Yeah. I, I think the other thing that you, you got me triggered in a good way, triggered sounds negative, but I think lately I'm playing games I, I'm enjoying, but I'm playing them as they come. And I'm playing as I go. And I'm waiting for the calls to be happening. Calling meaning I felt called to come back and work on some things for AppSumo. I felt called to finally you know, change some of where I was living. And you know, in, in terms of relationship, I was dating for a bit and then I was not clear. And I was like, I'm going to take a break and, and just chill on that while I, until I feel called. But I, I wonder on the same side of that, but that's fun, you know, kind of seeing what life is bringing. But I do wonder if there's something to think more, okay, in 10 years, where do you want it to go? Maybe not exactly, but that kind of can help direct some decisions. Is that, did I hear you correctly? Yeah, that's exactly right. Because what you're trying to do is create that decision tree where you kind of take the path towards. So unless you make a total strategic decision with yourself that actually, I don't want that, I want this now. And that's okay. But generally, it just keeps you on the path of making the right track. And that helps you with all of these things. Yeah. It sounds like you do long-term thinking based on what you're saying here uh, and the material you put out. How much has that been different than you planned? Or is most of the plans that you said, hey, here's where I want to go in 10 years from where the macro trends of finance go, as well as you know, in terms of your life direction? Uh, I've been lucky. I've tended to be able to get somewhere near what I was hoping to do. And, you know, I'm not saying that's because I'm a genius. You know, some of it is luck and also because of the strategy that I use that kind of keeps you sort of on the right path. So I don't think my path has changed. Ending up in the Caribbean was actually something I didn't imagine. I thought Spain was it, but I ended up kind of, I got divorced and I built this amazing new house. And I thought I'd spend a bit of time there because my ex-wife was in that lovely house in Spain. So a new life started and then I started building, okay, what's my new future? What do I want that to be? So I went through that whole process all over again. And now I'm kind of remarried and, you know, living between these two islands and stuff like that. The divorce probably wasn't in the 10 year plan. Um, oh, was it? No, no, it wasn't in the 10 year plan. It wasn't. And that was so I took corrective action from where I wanted to be in life. How did that change? Uh, we shouldn't use the word fancy life, but, the, but that vision of what makes me happy. I realized that I wasn't fully in that and probably my wife wasn't either. We're still great friends today. In fact, I had dinner with her last night, but just realized it was not the right path to get to where I saw the future lie. And so, you know, at some point you have to make that change. And some of those changes aren't easy to take, but, you know, it was the right change. Connor, you, your wife came to visit you in the she, Grand she, Cayman. She lives here. So my ex-wife lives here in Grand Cayman. She still works with me. And my wife now is friends of hers. and we did it all very amicably, which is the right way. And that takes time and effort. But because my future self didn't want a ridiculous situation of anger and bitterness, I made it so. 
I like this future self. I think a lot of what I've experienced in the past 18 months is around just accepting myself. Yeah, most people spend too long on their past selves. How you grew up, how somebody made you feel, how this, and that's harder. Some people are on their present self, and that's okay. The journey of discovery, like post-divorce, I rediscovered myself, and that's a fantastic thing, and you kind of reset your path. But having the future as your guide allows you to leave the past behind because it becomes less relevant. But a lot of people dwell so much on what happened to them that they forget about where they're going. And then you get lost. I think you have to know what game you you personally, Noah, Raul, listener, people out there, what game they want to play. One thing, you know, specifically in starting companies, I have observed that, and I'm curious your opinion on this, where they're like, I want to go build a million dollar company or I want to be able to work, you know, in, in Vietnam. But then they never can get going. So they actually have a relatively clear future self. And maybe you could argue they don't really want it. But I, I guess I, would, I wonder what, how you can encourage them or what you think about someone who's got a clear future self, but they never start with the present self to get to that point. Yeah, so being an entrepreneur is actually really hard because you don't know the outcome when you start. You kind of hope and you have to accept the fact that this may not be the opportunity that gives you that. And then you have to fight for it then. You have to fight really hard. You know, Building businesses is, yeah, we all read the stories of, you know, I started in my garage, five years later, we're all billionaires. I mean, but that's bullshit, right? It's actually miserably hard work, trying to learn how to manage people, trying to learn, you know, why you're failing, what you've got wrong every day, having to focus on the failures and never the wins, never being able to accelerate a victory. It's, it's relentlessly hard. Well, for the people who don't know you, by the way, now we're, you know, halfway through our this chat today. Why do you think this audience should listen to you just, you know, about these different things? Maybe not about the future self necessarily, but around the things that, you know, you become popular for. Why should they? Well, I would never impose that on anybody. All I can bring is my experience. In contextualization of what we talked about, my father was first generation Indian immigrant in England. My mother was a first generation Dutch immigrant. They met on a blind date in a small town in England. And I ended up living in India, traveled the world because my dad yeah, my parents loved traveling. I was really lucky. So, you know, I was going to Morocco at, you know, six years old and traveling to India and doing all this stuff. So it's in my blood. Dad had traveled overland from England to India. But what it meant was I was pretty broadly experienced. And so even though I barely made it through university because I was enjoying myself too much, I scraped through and then kind of fought my way into my career. And I, I spent 30 years where I focused on, I figured out very quickly what it is that I was good at, which was this living in the future thing and that I could visualize everything. And so I discovered the world of macroeconomic investing, which is a world where you're basically looking at the future state and trying to bet on what assets move because of that state and continually reassess whether that state's happening or not. It's kind of the world's most beautiful puzzle. And it's bloody hard, but it attracts some incredible minds. And that's why you know some of the most famous investors of all time is just incredible people, particularly at the macro world, the George Soros's, the Stan Druckenmiller's, the Paul Tudor Joneses. These were my clients because I was a salesman at first. And I learned from the best of the best. I, I saw them, I saw them make mistakes, saw them doing have incredible victories, got to know them as people. And that was amazing, you know, to have that mentorship. And so, you know, I'd been around the hedge fund industry for a lot longer than most people. And then I ended up, you know, starting and running a whole business at Goldman Sachs, which is a firm that had rejected me out of university because my degree was so bad. But then, you know, they then specifically recruited me themselves, uh, one of the partners directly to come and join them and help them build a business, and then going to run a hedge fund and then opting out of the whole rat race. It's the broad experience of life, the investment game, and the 
perspectives that it gives you for our, all of our economic lives. That's what basically I try and help people with. What's a story that comes to mind that you're proud of uh, in your macroeconomic uh, career? It's probably the one I'm in now. The one I'm yeah. in now, in terms of investing, I think starting Real Vision was another great one. And also moving to Spain and starting that research business that gave me the freedom of life back. So I, I don't differentiate macro bets from life bets because they're all the same. They're all macro bets. But the bet that I took last year when everything was falling apart and I realized what this would mean for digital assets and I put 100% of my entire liquid net worth, every single penny I had from every bank account into Bitcoin and then Ethereum and other stuff was pretty prescient. I'm quite proud of it because it's done phenomenally well from then. And it bizarrely made me quite famous because of it. Because I, I then taught people why I did, made that decision. And that decision had come from all of my years of learning from my whole career. So it wasn't like an instantaneous thing. It was actually the accumulation of everything I'd ever learned put into one moment in time where you can press the bet. All right. There's definitely one. That was a big uh, dick drop right there. I like that. <laughs> they were like, you know, that was cool. Obviously, with, with the two things, can you give any high-level numbers around that? No, but, you know, because it was cash, you know, the cash that I had, it doesn't include, you know, because people use total net worth. I mean, what my Real Vision shares worth, I don't know, until you sell the business. You know, what are my houses worth? They're worth nothing because I don't want to sell them. They're places where I live. No, it was just more like the return that happened. Oh, right you. now? And then, I, I don't know what I'm up, 600%? So maybe we can walk through, I think, the decision process there. So that I think other people can learn how you thought about it. It sounds like something you know you've done a lot in your content. So, like, how did you think about that so other people can try to make that? And then, I guess, at what point did you get the conviction that okay, this is all in? So, let me give you the story because there's the whole backfill. So, 2008, I'm in Spain and I'm writing about the financial crisis beforehand because my job is to predict it. So, I predicted what was going on, and you know, a lot of the kind of famous hedge fund managers in the film The Big Short and stuff were clients of mine. So I kind of knew what was going on. But what made me uncomfortable is friends of mine or friends of my parents would come up to us, to me, and say, why didn't I know? And I was like, it's kind of weird. But I realized the media had let people down. People didn't really know what was going on. But we basically lost the entire financial system. Then the Federal Reserve started quantitative easing, which was basically the printing of money to try and paper over the cracks in this broken financial system from too much debt. Then I was in Spain again in 2012 when we almost lost Europe. <laughs> we lost, almost lost the euro and was broke apart and the entire European structure almost broke apart. And it was got scary in Spain. I mean, I had to order a generator and f dry foods for my house because we thought we were going to, we thought we were going to lose the banking system over the weekend. And the ECB eventually forced Spain to accept a bailout of the banks. So Cyprus had lost all of its banking system already at that point, And Greece had pretty much lost all of theirs. So we were at the very, very brink. And I realized that having been at the epicenter of the financial system, that it was now so broken and there was so much leverage and it was so such a mess that there was no way out. And I started looking at, can I do something about it? Is there an opportunity here? Can I start the world's safest bank? So I, I spent a year going around the world with a bunch of others trying to do that. And then somebody started talking to me about Bitcoin in 2012. And I realized that it was potentially the answer to a lot of the problems. And again, my job was not to look at Bitcoin then, but look what it could be. What does blockchain technology mean for the future? So I kind of figured out, okay, yes, this is a game changer because we can have trusted ownership of everything in the financial markets, which was basically what went wrong everywhere else. So I started investing in it on and off and then bought it and sold it a couple of times. And then I was waiting for the next recession. 
because I kind of knew that when the next recession comes, this world, this parallel world of crypto that was being built was going to meet the world of macro at the same horizon point, which is a recession, because we're going to stress test the financial system and things have even got worse, the leverage and all of the debt. So I thought when that moment comes is the moment to jump onto the life raft, which is Bitcoin and this whole parallel financial system. And it arrived and I saw it and you know, I look at a lot of chart patterns to determine where we are in the move. And I just thought, this is it. And I got the confirmed break on the chart. I started buying some, got the confirmed break on the charts, which I've been looking for and been following that chart for three years. The moment everything that I'd learned about the world and the financial system had come to this one point, we knew the only answer was going to be massive printing of money. And we knew that the financial system was now not trusted by anybody. So this was going to be, it's going to be, become the core focus of most people's attention. So that's why I took the bet. And how did I size the bet? I started a bit smaller at first. And then once the price confirmed and I started seeing that the network effects of Bitcoin, more people were coming into the network and the institutions were coming in because they were reaching out to me, the world's biggest hedge funds, family offices, investment funds were all calling me up endlessly saying, how do we get involved? I'm like, okay, this is the once in a lifetime opportunity for the little guy, which is everybody in retail to front run every single institution in the world. So now's the chance. So I just went all in. And I made it public and took everybody on the public journey with me. I then moved out into some other assets, Ethereum and other stuff. And via Real Vision and Twitter, I told the narrative all the way through with honesty and openness exactly what I was doing and used the backfill of the story to help guide people through why I did it. And that it wasn't, even though I labeled it as irresponsibly long, that it actually wasn't irresponsible because, you know, nobody can take away my house because I don't have a mortgage. And but there was ways I could structure the bet. But the point being, was to take everybody on that narrative arc so that they could understand it as well. What's interesting that I've, something I've noticed, especially in 2021, is I've talked to a lot of different entrepreneurs and people making money in different ways. And what seems risky to ourselves is not risky to them. So when people talk to me about starting companies, they're like, that sounds so risky. And I'm like, it was n- I've never taken a risk starting a company. And what you're doing sounds risky to me and probably to a lot of other people, but to you, after you know decades of research and doing in this industry, you knew certain things that other people did not. And I also knew my, my own position, which was I owned my houses outright. So I can't be made delinquent, thrown out of my house. And I've got an income stream. So I've got an income stream that was not under question from this and had the security of having a house. So therefore, okay, why not go all in? Because what am I going to lose? My cash savings. Okay, that's a risk, but it wasn't going to change my life. What should I go all in, in right now? The same. Yeah. Yeah, it's, this is not finished, and it's much bigger than that. I'm writing it down. <laughs> I'm like, I got to stop this interview and stop hanging out with you, Raul, and uh, I got to go spend some money. <laughs> invest some money, too. Well, no, I, I, I just, I think that's an important point. Just, I want to highlight it one more time for you, also for myself and for the audience, is that I think, one, listen to people that have had consistent track records or have significant experience. I wrote this down two days ago, which is, you can learn from anyone, but learn from people who are consistently winning. If they've done it a few times, there's probably something there. But I think the other piece is that if you're if you're not, Find the space that you have an advantage in. And you have an advantage in macro and in banking. I have an advantage in marketing, in startups. It's, not, it's just what I've been doing for 20 years. And I think people kind of neglect that, uh, that everyone has some knowledge in some space. Maybe it's mommy blogging. So what you should have done is put all, everything into Spotify, uh, not Sp- Sp- Shopify, because that was exactly the nexus of everything you knew. So can I, can I talk to that yeah. for one second? Because I did. No, I didn't. I'm also, let me just clarify. I am a wussy investor. I came from my upbringing, 
which, you know, we can go into my parents are very conservative. My dad was very reckless. I think until recently, the past 18 months, I always was kind of scared it was going to go away. And now I have enough that I'm like, if you take away my company, you take away everything, I'm like, I'm still set for life. What was happening is our company, AppSumo.com and Sumo Group, we were building a lot of things for Shopify. And we had a lot of customers starting to really, we saw Shopify take off. And so I invested, I'm not a big investor, but I put 10,000 into Shopify when it was like 20, 30 bucks. And the reason I did that, which that was, that's it for me, even though I have a lot of cash, that's a big number for me. Because I was like, well, if our stuff doesn't work on Shopify, at least Shopify is my hedge. And so I think you're exactly right, which is where do you, like, you know, there's been other investments that are like Libsyn. Libsyn's a podcasting hosting. They're actually a public company and their financials are phenomenal. And I was like, I use them. I pay them money. I'm not moving anywhere. Economics seem pretty damn good and pretty cheap. It's like a $50 million company. Really? Yes. I think maybe now they might be worth $100 million. Anyway, same kind of concept. And I talked about my stepdad, which is like, where's your advantage? And so as much as your thing was risky going all in, maybe it wasn't as risky as it seemed. And also, I've only done that once in my life. You only need one. Yeah. This is not the thing that you repeat because you will go bust. Do you think about it all the time, all these dumbasses, you got me all fired up, all these dumbasses leveraging the hell out of it, going crazy on some stupid ass coin or some stupid ass like new meme stock, it fails, then they brag about it and or they brag how they got it so quickly. And I'm like, you're going to lose it just as quickly. But, you know, I was going through Reddit last night, looking at Wall Street bets and seeing the fact that they kind of laugh when they lose money too. They kind of just laughing at the whole system. They just don't care. It's a really unique style of investment because they, they literally don't care. It's the, it's the whole YOLO thing. I don't know what it says, but it says something about societal change. I just don't know what it is. It's funny. I legitimately go to Wall Street bets because it is hysterical. Like besides the YOLO bets, which, you know, it's inspiring. It is. You're kind of, it makes you think, man, I should be more bold in my life. And they're all calling themselves apes. So again, it's not like this ego of the financial markets. It's the opposite. It's like, we're all stupid, but look at the bet I'm taking. Actually, the crowd is actually pretty smart. So that's the dirty secret there. I mean, they figured out some stuff that was pretty clever. The hive mind, as I refer to it, you know, once you get this broad community all aiming to solve the same problem, they actually make good decisions. Well, I think to the point that we're kind of highlighting is find the big bet that's not risky for yourself. That's right. You, you mentioned something in passing. I want you to, if you can go a little deeper on that. You said that crypto is still early. Uh, I'd be curious to hear your, your take on that. Yeah. So... People at various points in their crypto journey, so people get into it because they hear about Bitcoin, usually because it's gone up a lot. And then they start learning about Bitcoin and its store of value and the governments are destroying, the Fed are running... They've printed all this money. We go through that journey. And yes, that's all valid. And then you suddenly discover this thing called Ethereum and you realize, oh my God, this is like a platform where everyone's building applications on this blockchain technology and it's incredible. And then you start learning about decentralized finance and and how you don't need a banking system. And then you start going, oh my God, this is bigger than I think. And then somebody goes, oh, by the way, have you seen NFTs? You know, what the hell's that? And it's like, well, these are these digital certificates, basically the trade that can attach to anything digital and physical. And you're like, okay, this sounds a bit silly now. But then once you realize it, when you see where the world is going, and the big focus for me is social communities, they're all being tokenized. So in 10 years time, your community around your media output or around you yourself will be tokenized. And what that does is it creates an entire layer of value above that of equity, because it's the value of your community. And that community is worth a lot. But right now you rent the community back off Google and Facebook, 
Libsyn, and everybody else, right? So everybody gets a slice of your community. Once you have the tokens and your audience has participation in the network itself, their job becomes to drive network effects. So this is why Bitcoin is so clever, because once you own Bitcoin, your job is to tell everybody about it because it goes up. So it's a network effect model, which is how Facebook works and Google works, right? Daniel Kahneman, one of the forefathers of behavioral economics, basically taught all the Silicon Valley guys exactly this. So the token-based system is incredibly powerful because your audience benefits as well as you from the economics. And you create entirely new layers of value. So maybe the layer of value is a one-hour phone call with Noah. What's that worth? Well, there's a group of people who will, will pay you a bunch of their tokens for that. And that could be therefore valuable at $5,000 for your hour, which may be different from one person to the other. You can also say, well, I'm going to sell private podcasts where I've done certain content and it's only for you. And in fact, you get to ask the questions with me and we'll create that, that you can own that piece of content by paying with the token. So you create all different things. So the best example is, is music acts. So a music act nowadays they basically don't monetize in Spotify because Spotify has destroyed their economics. So Spotify is top of funnel now. So all of their recorded music is top of funnel. So they lose money on it or best break even. If they're a big band, they'll break even from streaming versus recording costs and agents costs and everything else. So they have to make it all in the really kind of capital intensive, time intensive touring, which is a terribly non-productive way of doing it. Why does touring work? What you're doing is reducing your audience to a limited audience and charging them more for it and giving them a unique experience, which is every night's a unique experience. So people will pay $150 to go and watch you live. And then you get a chance to have a meet and greet where you can charge money for that and a few bits and that's and some merch. That's it. And this changes all of it. Well, I want to stick with the crypto, but as a sub thought in this crypto area, how do you think about these future things where you're like, well, obviously to you, communities are going to be tokenized. Are you sitting? Are you researching? Yeah, like, I'm, I spend my entire time talking to people about this. I'm working on some very big projects on this. And it's just a logical conclusion of some of the issues we face, which is the massive value extraction by the massive platforms. So a musician loses 80% of their income. So they get 20% of actual sales. So you're like, okay, well, how do you solve for that? You also realize that the, we're now clustering around communities online. So we cluster in a community of, you know, we like this football club and, and we like to chat about finance and we like to listen to this music. And we have these clustered communities that we live in. So we affiliate ourselves globally in, this, in these online tribes. And these online tribes are basically where we feel comfortable. So we go back to the conversation we were having earlier. So where are the societies that we feel comfortable in, where we feel understood and we can play a meaningful part? This is what they are. What tokenization does is actually allow you to have a meaningful part as opposed to trolling in the comments section. You actually get to even, for example, there's a token called Chili's on a platform called Socios. Chili's creates tokens for the world's biggest soccer clubs, FC Barcelona, Roma. And so the fans now get a chance. They get the right to vote on certain club things, which is you know, what's the away kit this year or, you know, whatever it may be, they get the chance to have a say in the club that they love. And football is in people's lives, you know, all around the world. You know, people live and breathe that tribal thing and they would do anything for their club. So the tokens allow them to do it. And that's amazing. 
Well, I guess with, with this stuff, one, I like that you, you kind of said in passing, which is to learn about the future, you talk to a lot of smart people. Yes. So I don't read other people's investment research, for example, because I don't want it to pollute my own thinking. But I like to hear people's thoughts. And that's why I find Twitter quite useful, although it's a bit overpowering, where I can get a lot of input. But also, I just like to have conversations with people because somebody always knows something that you didn't know that fits into this little map you're building of this future world. And so you have a bunch of conversations and it can be exhausting to do so. But if you know that you want to get to this promised ground of, I need the knowledge to get to here, then you'll, you'll find the energy to speak to the people and have all these calls. And I'm so lucky because I can do half of these on camera for Real Vision. So I get to just basically choose who I want to pick the brains from. So for example, there's a guy called Jared Dicker who writes a blog and he's been an investor and he's a unbelievably forward thinking in this whole environment. So he's not even thinking about social tokens. He's, as I am, thinking about how this fits in with the metaverse, which is the digital representation of our world. And not only that, but these things called DAOs, which are digital autonomous organizations, and how that all fits into this. It's really complicated. But once you go down the rabbit hole, Noah, you'll realize that's where you're going to, and you just don't know it yet. Who else is forward thinking that people should be checking out, including yourself? There's an interview I did on Real Vision, on the, on the Real Vision Crypto, so it's free. So just go to realvisioncrypto.com and search a guy called Pierce Kicks, P-I-E-R-S, Kicks, K-I-C-K-S. Uh, it might be on YouTube now. It's actually probably on a YouTube channel as well, so you can find it on YouTube. That interview, this guy is, I don't know, 23 years old. He looks annoyingly like a young Orlando Bloom, and he's really, really, really smart. He completely blew my world when he taught me about the metaverse, because I kind of thought gaming wasn't that relevant. And then he explained where this is all going. And then I've gone down further down that rabbit hole and made some big discoveries in that space. That was an incredible interview. That's really well worth doing. There's another one if people haven't got into their Bitcoin crypto journey yet. There's an interview with myself and a guy called Dan Tapiero. And again, it's on YouTube. And that from about two and a half years ago, Dan is an old friend and I was out of crypto, had been out for a while, and he kept calling me up saying, let's talk about crypto. I'm like, I'm not interested. I'm trading the dollar or whatever I was doing. And I'm busy with real vision. He's like, let's talk about crypto. I'm not interested. So anyway, I said, look, we'll do it on camera because you've obviously got something you need to tell me. And he laid out this fantastic vision that's you know, one of the most viewed videos in this whole space ever. So that's definitely worth watching as well. Which video? The chat with you and Yeah, him? Dan Tapiero, T-A-P-I-E-R-O. It's funny, I wrote a thought down a few days ago where it's like, I, I, I think my talent is finding great talent. Well, that's a good talent to have, right? If you're build, building businesses, if you can do that, that's amazing. Well, I think it's the same in, in what you're saying is that if, if people are like, what's the next big idea? Or what's the business idea? Or where's the future going to go? Nowadays, it's almost kind of crazy how available that's, that's out there, right? Like on YouTube, on Twitter, in newsletters. It's amazing. But you need somebody to curate that journey for you, which is kind of what you're doing, right? With this, you're creating a journey for your audience of knowledge. It's these curated journeys by people who trust you that is really powerful. And that's the future of media these days, because there's too much information everywhere. So people just want their person to take them on the journey or their group of people. Yeah, I guess I curate the uh, the trip on the Noah's Ark. The thing I'd also encourage myself, I'm saying for myself, but for, you know, for the audience as well, which is a lot of times the future sounds silly. A lot of the things I've noticed that I'm like, this is, and, and as when I was younger, I I think I still thought it was stupid, but I think I was probably more open-minded. And so I have to remind myself, like, maybe it sounds stupid, but maybe 
there's something interesting here. So I, I try to encourage at least myself and the audience to at least try it out. At the company, AppSumo.com, my first engineer, that not mine, but the first engineer that ever joined in 2010, Nick Johnson, was mining Bitcoin at like 0. 0.00 for nothing. And I was like, I don't care about your fake money. Just help me code AppSumo.com. Like, just help me get the website. He's like, you sure don't want any? I was like, no, nah, I don't want any of this. 2012, the rest of the team in 2013, the team started buying it. Everyone's buying it in the company. And I was like, you guys are so stupid. This is so stupid. 2016, I had to finally buy Bitcoin to watch some illegal NFL streams. <laughs> That's how, that, yes, it wasn't drugs. It wasn't illegal. I guess that, that is illegal streams. But I bought some Bitcoin for this, the streams, and I, I don't regret it at all. I'm, that got me the, the, you know, the NFL playoffs, which are great. But it got me understanding, oh, I get it now. And then I you know, started investing since then. But I think what I would encourage everyone out there is just, you know, one, look at the curators, look at the thinkers, but also just before you discount new silly stuff, the metaverse, the online horse racing with crypto and all these kind of NFT stuff, try it out. Like I tried out NFTs really aggressively when it popped off a little bit in January. And then pretty quickly, I was like, I don't see the sustainability in all of it. It'll, it'll be around, but as like an investment or technology, it's cool, but it's not where I want to spend time. And so I pretty much immediately pulled back, but I'm proud that I at least experienced it before I, you know, I, I just kind of wrote it off. Yeah. And also understand that once you start going down this space, you realize how many people are involved and developing and building business models. And it's kind of breathtaking how fast it moves. So you realize that nothing now is end state, apart from Bitcoin, but nothing else is end state. So, so what you saw in NFTs was like the very first user cases. We have no idea where this is going. And that's the kind of fun part of this journey as well. And you have to be open with the fact we don't know where it's going, but probably all of these incredibly smart people working on all of these things and working on business models, somebody's going to make something really interesting here. What's unbelievable nowadays, Rao, it's unbelievable how much information is out there that's unbelievable information. It's mind-blowing how much of your information is out there or my content, I'm starting businesses. And like literally Vitalik from Ethereum and uh, the Bitcoin white paper are public. You can read the Bible that these guys, and if you, I, I try to read the Bitcoin white paper and some of it's above my pay grade, but some of it I'm like, wow, that's so interesting that in 2009, this person put that out there. And you can go access a lot of this stuff now if you want to be knowledgeable, if you want to make better decisions and find a space kind of like you've done with macro trends in whatever space it is. Like it could be gardening, it could be restaurants, it could be starting companies. And it's all there and you can also be your own media company now. So if you want to take people on your journey of, of knowledge, do it. Yeah. Take people, start a YouTube channel, start taking journey of knowledge, and guess what? You'll have followers because everybody wants to learn something. I think there's a, a dearth of producers and an abundance of consumers. So I would encourage everyone, consume our stuff, obviously. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I think it's that, it's that top, you know, top shelf quality content. And then go make stuff. Right? Like go put out a newsletter like you, you know, got you going in it and just follow I personally think people should follow things they're interested in. Follow if it's ice cream, if it's macro trends. For me, it's it's marketing and starting businesses. Both you and I have been in the Tim Ferriss podcast, and that was, I mean, he just did it really well. He figured that out. Is like people want to know. Tim says, you know, I'm flawed, but I love to learn. Do you want to come and learn? And I've learned a few things myself on the way. I mean, who doesn't want to do that? Yeah, that, that's odd. I mean, I could definitely. I, I literally almost didn't get into any of the questions that we planned to talk about. People should check you out, obviously. We'll tell them to go check out realvision.com. Yeah, realvision.com. Or if you just want to get the crypto stuff, realvisioncrypto.com. Or you can find it on the main website. Or just find me on Twitter. I'm active. I answer people. I try and engage with as many people as possible. It's getting more and more difficult, but I'm always there. So at Raul, R-A-O-U-L-G-M-I. 
Well, that is a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as I did. Check out Raul. That's at Raul GMI on Twitter and realvision.com. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's go live on an island together. Next to whatever Raul. And before you go, tweet at me at Noah Kate and let me know what you thought of this episode. And don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel. I put out exclusive juicy business videos just for people like you. That's youtube.com slash okdork. Finally, a couple shout outs to my amazing team. Special thanks to Jason at podcasttech.com for making these episodes. I love you, man. Thank you to Mitchell, Jeremy, Hubert, Jonathan, Sasa, and Jen, and Cam from the Dork team. Y'all do so much. And a final big-ass shout-out to Austin, Chad, and Og, a.k.a. Dr. Coffee, a.k.a. Neil, at AppSumo.com. Thank you for fixing issues with mobile opponents over a weekend, and I think it was a holiday weekend. All the Sumo links and customers, and me, thank you. You guys are amazing. Have a sunshiny day! What's your favorite coffee shop?